This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. At Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences, RRR sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. past nine you are tuned to 102.73 triple r you may be listening via rrr.org.au it's time for this week's radio marinara my name's bron burton and i'm angeline charles how are you angeline i'm good bit good. chilly but looks like being a lovely day that's what you get midwinter yeah it is that's right it is sunny yeah thank you tim very much it was a great bit of jeff buckley there on the yeah. way in it was was beautiful yeah three hours of uh, Sunday morning power. Hey, uh, we've got all kinds of things for you today. All things wet and salty is what we do. Uh, Neil Blake's going to be joining us in studio shortly to give us an update on what's been happening in his world as the baykeeper of Port Phillip. Port Phillip? Port Phillip Bay. I've heard this discussed a little bit lately. It's officially Port Phillip. That is its correct name. Right. It was, it's, it's, and that's the name it's registered under the place names. It was Port Phillip Bay, but they changed it sometime back. Okay. Because Western Port's been known for a long time as just Western Port. Yes. Because it's not technically a bay, it's an embayment. We're getting very technical here. You are. Um, I think that's Western Port is is also like its place name and people seem to be more comfortable with using that. Yeah. They seem to want to say... Port Phillip Bay, it's kind of like saying, you know, I live in um, East Brunswick suburb type thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So are there any bays? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, if that's what it's been registered as, as its name. Right. Then it would have that, yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Anyway, there we go. It's a little bit of 
Yeah. <laughs> Something to ponder. We're then going to cross to Dr. Surf. He uh, specifically wanted to come on the phone today and give us a surf report because the surf's been going off. So he's very excited and wants to tell us all about that. Well, it's good to see you can take some time out to get on the phone. That's it. Unless the surf's good this morning, in which case... We'll, <laughs> we'll go to plan B. <laughs> yeah. um, then we're going to cross to Hobart and speak with David Griffin from the CSIRO about uh, some uh, research recently conducted by um, a little gadget known as IMOS, which is uh, the Integrated Marine Observing System. It's basically a torpedo with wings. It looks wow. like a torpedo yeah. with wings. Very um, cool-looking device. Also known as an ocean glider, and it's just come back from a 72-day journey through the Great Australian Bight, taking all sorts of... um, I don't know whether it's been taking images. It's been collecting data on currents and temperature and salinity and and, and other things like that. So we're going to talk to him about that and sort of what do we know about the Great Australian Bight? Yeah, that sounds interesting. What don't we know about the Great Australian Bight, probably more importantly. So uh, we'll have a chat with him about that. And then, Angeline, some updates on the great cleanup project from you the the um <clears throat> the cleanup uh, ocean project which yes. is run out of the netherlands uh by uh, a, a man who's leading that team boyan slat uh and just to hear their latest uh step forward which is putting deploying some uh, trial equipment in the in the uh north sea just off the off the hague so we'll hear more about that future nobel prize winner absolutely we're calling that <laughs> definitely <laughs> you heard it first <laughs> So there you go. That's our show today. All right, weather. It's uh, going to be 16. We we're saying it's beautiful, sunny, so sunny yesterday. Almost spring oh, it's great, time. wasn't it? Mm. It's was a great weekend. It's like a reward for the, the freezing cold week, <laughs> wet week that we all endured. Uh, mostly sunny and patches of light frost about the nearby hills in the early morning. Light winds becoming northerly 25 to 35 kilometres in the morning. Almost dryable for the washing on the line, not quite yet. <laughs> not quite. You end up putting it all out anyway on the clothes horse. Do you do that? We don't have a dryer. I, I start out on the line because it gets it mostly dry. Yeah. Let's, let's not go there into this. It's getting too domestic now. <laughs> it is a bit domestic. <laughs> Tomorrow, 17, possible late shower. Uh, Tuesday, 16, possible shower. Wednesday, 15, partly cloudy. Thursday, 16, shower or two. Friday, 15, showers. And then Saturday... They're predicting it's going to go down to 13. On the waters, oh, we'll, do a, we'll do a quick... No, we won't. We're going to leave Dr Surf to do the, um, the surf forecast. The tide times, if you're going diving today, PT Hirschfield, she'll be diving. She, oh, dives, she dives every, every day, doesn't she? Every single day. And um, you, uh, you underwater icebreakers out there, we know that you're out there. You'll probably want to know the tide times too. Uh, we are heading for a high tide at 112 uh, Oh, that's at Williamstown, sorry. We're heading for a low, uh, high tide at Port Phillip Heads at 9.42 this morning and a low tide at 2.38 this afternoon. Good on you if you're out there. So if people who swim in the bay all year round are icebergers, what, what would we be calling the divers? Oh, barking mad. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're amazing. I, I actually learned to dive in winter. I did my very first dive probably about this time, actually. I know it was in July at Flinders Pier. Yep, and I'll okay. never forget that piercing headache that comes when, you, when your face hits the water. Yep. So it's amazing. A um, little bit of news to kick off with, and then I think we'll listen to some music. You've got something there, Angeline? I do have something which I'll just briefly talk about. There's been a lot of dieback in mangroves across uh, northern Australia, in Northern Territory and, and Queensland, and about uh, a stretch of 700 kilometres uh, they've discovered there's been a lot of dieback. 
back and they've been able to tie that back to occurring at the same time around the four weeks, September, October 2015, of when they experienced the extreme coral bleaching mm. and think that uh, they're related events in that it was quite dry and the water temperatures were quite hot. So uh, it was um, an extreme sort of condition that the mangroves couldn't cope with. And I think it's about uh, 10,000 hectares of mangroves that have died, which is a really large, large area. So It's absolutely frightening. Yeah, and an area where it's not, not a lot of... Um, surveillance from people so I guess it's, it's largely unknown and unnoticed so it'll be interesting to see whether they can recover from that. And of course mangroves are not just a bunch of trees living in salty water they actually the foundation of entire ecosystems they are, and, right. um, and nursery grounds for yep. and carbon sinks. Carbon sinks they're extremely important it's the the big problem with mangroves I think is just that they've, they've got an image issue. Yes. <laughs> People kind of see them as being straggly little trees in the salt water and don't think too much about I them. I think because it's so important. It's not uh, usable for as an environment that's not usable for humans mm. uh, that we just tend, that some people tend to not value them for that reason. That's right. I know there's been a big issue in Western Port too with people just wanting to cut them down so they can increase their view of the water. Yes. Not realising the damage that they're doing. Or potentially to their property yes, <laughs> in time to come. That's right, in time to come. <laughs> the other one we wanted to quickly mention was um, whale sightings because yeah, it's whale season. It is. There's this great... Um, I'll put this up on the Radio Marinara Facebook page. Last Saturday, there were a couple of icebergers swimming off the Brighton um, breakwater and spotted a couple of what I think are humpbacks coming past. Absolutely magnificent footage. And... Uh, Oh, no, it was a friend of an iceberger, sorry. He was fishing. I was say, he had his, his phone in his <laughs> pocket while he was swimming. Well, this guy was fishing off Black Rock and, and spotted these whales coming past and grabbed yep. his phone. And the, the quality of the footage is it's just spectacular. It? It's hard to believe this is Brighton. Yeah. I thought what was amazing too is that they're perfectly synchronised. Yeah. Perfectly. It's just it's magnificent. Just, yeah, it's a gorgeous film. If you, uh, if you happen to get any of this footage, if you're out there, send it our way. Particularly, we, it's it's so lovely to see whales coming past, but in Port Phillip Bay, it's such a bonus. It is a bonus, and it does generally happen around this time. Mm. There's always usually a sighting each year. So close to Melbourne. Mm. Amazing. You are listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR, and uh, we just had a call then. Jack rang in. Thank you, Jack. He uh, wanted to let us know that the um, footage of the couple of what I think are humpbacks in Port Phillip at the moment uh, has also been posted by Blair Gary Yacht Club and um, claiming that it's that it was shot from there. So uh, we have a very interesting situation. Situation where we have two yacht clubs who've both both posted the same footage and uh, and said that it was taken from there. So, what we've done is um, uh, Angeline's in the process of putting it up on the Radio Marinara Facebook page. Uh, if you're interested, you can take a look and tell us what you think because we've uh, we've inspected the footage um, while we were listening to Little Wise. And, uh, yeah, we're not really sure. We're thinking perhaps it might be Blair Gary after all. So, um, anyway, head to the Radio Marinara Facebook page, have a look, and uh, post us your comments about where you think this might have come from. We're interested in what you think, um, particularly those of you who know the Mornington Peninsula side of the bay well, as does Neil Blake. Good well, morning, Neil. Yeah, good morning. You know that stretch very well. I was down there last week, believe you? it or not. Yeah. Did you see any whales? No, there were no whales, so... Um, at the time, but uh, I actually spent a bit of time with Judy Muir from the Pol Perro. Pol Perro, uh, yeah. And, uh, yes, he was mentioning a bit of activity down that way, so possibly could have been Blair Gary because that's where we were. Yeah. 
Mm. It's interesting when you look really closely, you can you can see the Yuyangs in the footage, but they're a long way away. I, I think it's the Yuyangs that we're looking at. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to leave it out there too. We'll, we'll get a bit of um, bit of public vote going on here. I think. Yeah, well, it's great to see whatever wherever wherever it's uh, Brighton or or Blair Gary, it's just fantastic. Exactly. To see their back. Exactly, and regardless of where it is, the footage is really spectacular. How have you been, Neil? Oh, really good. Uh, there's, there's just heaps going on, and uh, the uh, weather has been extraordinary. So ups and downs with the, the wild weather uh, about a week ago it was fantastic. Really, uh, um, sort of brought about some changes to the coastline, particularly down on the uh, uh, southeast uh, side of the bay, which is the only area that I've had a chance to have a good look at. Changes in the sense of well, uh, sand quite erosion. Well, a bit of sand moved around right. there, so uh, we did some beach profiling down at, at Macrae, which was. Um, very timely because it was basically the day afterward that the savage winds had done their work. So uh, we've, we've caught the extreme situation, I think. So it'll be interesting to see uh, whether that sand returns seasonally. So that, that's we've, we've captured the data in terms of the profile for the winter period. Mm when we tend to get lots of uh, northerly winds and things like that. So it uh, would um, be interesting to check out what's going on in another six months' time. Because when the wind turns around to the southwest, that whole stretch gets quite protected, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. So, yep. uh, and um, it, Possibly the uh, beaches will return to their original state, but uh, the time will tell. Now, Angela and I were speaking at the start of the show about Port Phillip and uh, whether or not we should be including the word bay. Do you, mm. do you have any uh, knowledge or opinion on that? Well, there's um, uh, apparently about 16 or 17 bays in Port Phillip Bay. So ah, OK. <laughs> there's lots of little ones, so uh, that's another part of the discussion. Yeah, and, of course. Mm. And does that make it a mega bay? Well, uh, what, what do you call the gaggle of bays or something? Oh, I like don't know, that? the collective <laughs> noun for bays. Yeah, exactly. So. Wow, we're going down a whole other avenue here. Yeah, but, you know, you could go back to the Indigenous name too, which I understand was Nam. 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 Oh, okay. Which, uh, there's a couple of different spellings I've seen of that, but uh, N-A-I-R-M or N-E-R-M. Right. So, you know, that's another another direction we could think about. Fantastic. Uh, now, um, I mentioned at the start of the program you were going to be updating us on uh, a new study of beach cast microplastics. What are beach cast microplastics? Well, uh, they, um, they're generally fragments of uh, user items. That's a good collective name for them, I suppose. Things like bottle tops or, you know, uh, often um, straws and... Uh, bottles, all of that sort of stuff. Generally, often um, beverage and food packaging. So is it, it items that don't make their way through the stormwater system but are just deposited on the beach? Oh, well, they, they, they go through often from the stormwater system but then end up being put back onto the beach by uh, just wave action. Mm. So um, that's another thing where the winds play a big role in terms of where these things... So the beaches, for example, from... Um, Sandridge Beach near the mouth of the Yarra down to Bay Morris uh, particularly um, receive a lot of plastics that do come out of the Yarra because of the southwesterlies that you mentioned earlier on. So uh, that's one big giant litter trap on those <laughs> that, yeah. that area there. And, uh, and we're looking to uh, try and get an understanding of what are, what are the most common user items so that, uh, you know, you would hope that there might be some um, regulations or legislation enacted to um, to deal with these, or even better, uh, stormwater infrastructure. So there's a whole whole range of things that need to be done to reduce these things from getting into the marine environment in the first place. Yeah, there was a bit of a push a few years ago uh, in terms of. Um 
completely replumbing uh, Melbourne's stormwater and sewage system because both are so ancient. We, we, they're well over 100 years old now. And it seems to have all gone quiet. Is that What's happened with that? Well, it's possible that um, it's, it's a bit of a tricky scenario, really, because if you're thinking about major infrastructure changes like that, you need to be planning you know, for the, looking to 100 years ahead, I would have thought, because mm. it is a massive cost. And uh, we have that, um, uh, that con- dynamic of uh, sea level rise, so it's been accepted now, uh, the conservative estimate, that the sea level will rise in Port Phillip Bay to... Uh, another 800 millimetres by 2100. So any discussion about how you're going to replumb Melbourne <laughs> has to have that take that into consideration because uh, if you had to redo it again in another 15 years' time, that would be most embarrassing, Bron. It would indeed because it would cost an enormous amount of money. Is there any um, potential for retrofitting rather than actually going out there and replumbing the whole thing? Oh, well, yeah, I guess there would be a number of different... Uh, Different ways different, you could do uh, it. Situations according to local s- circumstances, but uh, th- there's no question that the, the lower lying areas, though, around the bay, particularly where there is um, heavily developed mm. uh, and there's a lot of infrastructure that um, is costly and would uh, could be threatened though by sea level rises. So they're, they're going to be the most problematic areas to, for the replumbing. Yeah. Now, um, so back to the beach cast microplastic study. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are your plans with that? Where is that going? Well, what I'd love to see, uh, I had a dream, you know, <laughs> that everyone would actually be uh, collecting data using the same method. And uh, because I think... Um, whilst people are doing good work, you know, there are a number of studies that have been done for quite a number of years, over a number of years. That's um, to the general public who we really need to connect with, and also the the, the legislators because they're they're influenced by the general public. Uh, we need to be able to capture a, a common message and and a clear understanding of what the issue is. So, having studies that are working. Uh, in accord with each other rather than sort of at cross purposes is really quite a critical thing to achieve. It's the biggest challenge with citizen science, isn't it? That's right, yeah. yeah. And even with science in general, really, you know, uh, if the scientists have got different methods. I remember Mike Cullen, the, from, uh, who was the penguin scientist at St Kilda years ago, said there were various studies of wedge-tailed eagles in Australia but uh, there couldn't be any links drawn between them because they had different methods. Mm. Uh, so we'll stay tuned to see how this one develops. Yeah, I think so. And if people are interested, I, I think we really need to have a good discussion about what is the purpose of, of collecting this information and also the process of collecting it so that uh, we can maximise the outcomes rather than just having some more stuff to get angsty about. I'm going to put you on the spot here and um, because it comes off the back of an interview that we did last week with uh, Karen Joins, who's based in Bermagui, but she's sta- um, joining some interstate dots with some of uh, some people who she's come across just via the internet, like-minded people who are really keen to see um, the, the end of public release of helium balloons at, at events. Yep. Are, you, are you noticing many helium balloons? Or not, you, you wouldn't know whether they're helium, but are you, are you noticing balloons and, and particularly little strings that they are connected to yeah i have seen surveys. have seen quite a few mm-hmm. and uh actually that's one of the things about the study that i would uh, want to see is that we only focus on collecting data on stuff that is ecologically damaging mm-hmm. so that 
we, we get away from this issue about litter being sort of not so, you know, it's only a little bit of litter. Uh, we, we have to really focus and change the public mindset that the, this stuff is actually ecologically damaging and certainly those balloons are. That's right. They reported um, balloons that had come up from uh, one lot had come up from Albury uh, and they were very clearly marked and another lot they're pretty sure had come from Melbourne and made their way all up all the way up to the New yeah, South Wales South very Coast. Very mobile, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and uh, any community activities coming up? Well, there's heaps actually, yeah. So um, the Elwood uh, uh, College have got a, a joint screening of... Uh, Baykeepers and Melbourne Down Under. Uh, have you seen Melbourne Down Under? Bro? Not yet. It's really a spectacular okay. film about underwater Port Phillip Bay. I have seen Baykeeping though. Yeah, Bay Baykeepers. Baykeepers. And, and uh, yeah, so um, the two really go hand in hand because Baykeepers is quite uh, onto the whole issue of plastics, etc., and uh, what needs to be done about it. Whereas the Melbourne Down Under is just spectacular uh, footage of underwater life in the bay, which many many people who don't dive uh, <laughs> just wouldn't have any real uh, you know idea was there. So uh, it's, they're a great um, package, really. In total screening times, only about an hour and. A quarter. Okay. For the two put together. So that's at the Phoenix Theatre at Alwood College this Tuesday at 6.45 p.m. 6.45, so yeah. that'll go till about 8 o'clock? Yeah. Yeah. Not Great. So, uh, so that um, should be a great event. And the other one is we're having a Be the Regeneration activity at the Echo Centre at 4 p.m. on the 31st of July. So the Be where the regeneration project uh, is engaging young people between 15 and 25. Oh, you can go either side of that. We don't care. <laughs> you know. uh, just just everybody. to get involved and uh, and be part of the citizen science activities that we've got, and also revegetating St Kilda breakwater. Um, and I should mention too that uh, speaking of young people, that uh, uh, G.R. Fitzpatrick, the Echo Centre's. Uh, Youth Wildlife Ambassador just picked up another award. The another one. He's won the Sustainable Cities Award at Keep Victoria Beautiful. So for Fantastic. a young leader, uh, Geo is 19 years old. And he also got uh, an individual award at the uh, World Environment Day evening that the United uh, Nations Australia Association conducted. So uh, he's uh, kicking goals all over the place. When I grow up, I want to be like him. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Neil. That's great. So um, just repeating that at the Phoenix Theatre this coming Tuesday, 6.45, a double screening of both uh, Baykeepers and uh, Melbourne Down Under. Uh, and is there a cost for that one? I don't believe so, no. Okay. It'd be, it'd be minimal if there is one. Yeah, right. So. And Elwood Sec, I've been into their, their Phoenix Theatre. It's a lovely yeah, little theatre. Yeah, lovely theatre. Uh, and on the 31st of July, off the, offhand, do you know what day of the week that is? Uh, it's Sunday. Sunday? Sunday afternoon, 4pm. Oh, at, lovely. At the Echo Centre in St Kilda Botanical oh, Gardens. Great. So St Kilda Botanical Gardens, be the regeneration, and uh, your superstar, Gia, will be there. Yeah, and we're hoping uh, actually to have a rough mix of a, uh, a, a rap song called Just A Little Bit of Litter Doesn't Matter, which is by MC Guttermouth. He's a <laughs> fantastic... Is that you, song. Neil? Uh, no, no, <laughs> this is a real man. He's, he's out there and uh, he's, he's got the message to spread. You're going to start a, a, a DJ career. <laughs> I think we've got to get you into this. Well, I, I, I do the Captain Trash thing with the electric ukulele. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> 
fabulous. Flying V. Flying V. Nice. Really good. Yeah. I can't wait to hear this one. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Been speaking with Neil Blake, our baykeeper. And without further ado, we're now going to cross to... Actually, I don't know where he can tell us himself. Good morning, Dr Surf. Morning, Brian. How are you? I'm having difficulty stringing two words together. <laughs> Has it been that good? Uh, I just... The two words I will string together are hooly looly. Right. It's been fabulous. So you are you uh, resting your weary bones this morning yes. and recovering? Right. Okay. I am. Fantastic. I am. I'm letting the other guys have a go. I'm being. <laughs> um, my mum taught me to share. Yes. <laughs> I'm sharing. Very good. So but yeah, it all started on Wednesday when that wild weather comes through, as it does this time of the year. You can always put your money on and good surf the day after and we had that really busy day on Tuesday and Wednesday was very big but very lumpy but it was a lot of fun and whereabouts I went in the bay my favourite spots in Western Port Bay and even in there it was head high so if it's head high in there it's going to be double overhead down the west side on the surf coast yep but Thursday morning and Friday morning were the peaks I I had to work Thursday but I was lucky enough to get in at dawn on Friday, and it was just everything you could possibly want. Perfect groom waves. Four guys out, I think I had four. You know, so much so that I was paddling over beautiful waves, just thinking, no, <laughs> I have a rest now. <laughs> I don't think I've heard you like this for a long time, Dr. Oh, Sue. And then, so, yeah, for those of you who are interested, go on Swellnet and have a look at the pictures that um, Judy Scanlon took. I think she took them Thursday of the Bells and Winky area. Right. To see how big and perfect it was. It was certainly an outstanding swell. And what's uh, it doing now? Is it all kind of settled down uh, again? It's settled down. It's what I would call, and thanks very much to my mate Phil, who rang in before to let me know how it is down here. It's, it's it, Look, there's still good waves on west of Melbourne. There's a bit of north in the wind, which is not perfect for the points. But we're hoping it'll back around the northwest later on. Down here on the peninsula, it's what we call an in-between day. It's sort of a bit three-foot waves at Flinders, but you've got to wait for them, and it's a bit too big for the beaches. There's a tiny wave coming in on the western port points if you want to go for a paddle on this beautiful chilly day. But there'll be waves I would pick. Ooh, 13th Beach would have some good waves, I think, today, somewhere down that, that way. And what are you doing? Are you just chilling and recovering? I'm painting. You're painting. <laughs> yeah, therapeutic painting. We've had a new bookcase put in, so I'm gonna just paint and dream. I love painting. It's it's very relaxing. Put triple R on. This is a good music. Paint, paint. Excellent. Now you're going to be in next week along with Dr. Beach. I am. Yes. Yep. Any uh, any yeah. idea on what you're going to be bringing in? I'm I'm hoping I've got a guest that's going to ring up a young fella down here by the name of Hayden, who's a surf photographer and traveller. So if you're listening, Hayden, give me a ring. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah, tuffle cut. But yeah, I'll look forward to that. And I'll, are you going to be in? Yeah, I'll be in. Good. I want you to wear disco gear, Ron, because <laughs> I'm bringing in some very special tracks. <laughs> So the, the blue satin pants, please. And oh, those nice. High boots. Yeah. All right. I'll uh, I'll go and work out what I've done with them. Thanks, Doctor Surf. <laughs> My pleasure. We'll catch you next week. Okay. See ya. See ya. Bye for now, Doctor Surf. There. He's had a fun week, hasn't he? Brilliant.
Now, a torpedo-shaped underwater research glider has just completed a 74-day journey through nearly 2,000 kilometres of waters of the Great Australian Bight. It's made it back in one piece, albeit with a few battle scars, loaded with information about the physical and chemical parameters of the bite. In total, the Integrated Marine Observing System, or IMOS, ocean glider has made 344 dives, surfacing regularly to transmit data back by satellite to land, where oceanographers have been busy analysing it all. Dr David Griffin is from CSIRO. He's part of the research team and joins us now to tell us more. Good morning, David. Welcome, uh, welcome to Radio Marinara. Thank you, Brian. Now, uh, we've been calling this the Adventures of IMOS. I thought we might start with a, a potted history of IMOS. Where did, where did IMOS or, or the idea for IMOS come from? Well, before we had IMOS, all the research community around Australia was kind of fragmented into different groups operating out of, you know, universities or government labs like CSIRO and all pretty much working in isolation um, and then sometimes sharing data that they'd all acquired from various instruments. And then someone thought, well, there must be a better way of doing this. Um, if we could move to a paradigm of having a sort of coordinated observing program and then everyone sharing that data so that um, you know, more value would be got from those, from the expensive uh, deployments, then we would make progress faster. And to make it even better, if if uh, by being coordinated like that, um, it would then become sort of a central infrastructure project properly funded, then there'd be many more observations as well. Uh, <clears throat> but that's what's happened. It's now funded as part of the NCRIS, which is, gee, National Centre for Research Infrastructure, and I forget what the S is. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> science, um, maybe. So, no, be Infrastructure for Science, maybe. Yep, something like that. Yep. Anyway, so NCRIS is the parent project. There's lots of other infrastructure, um, in, uh, sort of get types of infrastructure funded under NCRIS, but IMOS is one of them. And... So within IMOS, there's all sorts of different observing systems. There's these gliders, there's uh, current meters, um, uh, radars, and Argo floats, all sorts of things. These are the tools that oceanographers use for measuring the ocean. Fantastic. So I've been referring to the glider as IMOS, but IMOS is the entire system, so um, that's my error there. So we, what we're talking about here is a, a glider, which is uh, a torpedo-shaped um, uh, research instrument. Can you describe the glider for us? Because uh, I've seen a photo of it. I was having a look at your web page last night. It's a, a fascinating-looking thing. Yeah. So the glider is what we now use in preference to a whole ship. So it seemed rather wasteful in the old days to have a whole ship with 20 people on board and then every couple of hours a couple of people would go out the side and throw uh, an instrument over the side on a winch and go from the surface down to the seafloor measuring properties of the ocean while everyone else sat around doing nothing. And then the ship drives off for a few more hours, goes to another place and does that again. And you think, well, there must be an easier way to do this. We could just sort of do away with a ship, but just keep the instrument. And that's what the glider is. Fantastic. So it's far a, more, it, co it's far a bit, more cost effective. A bit like an underwater drone, but without the camera. Exactly. And sometimes we even put cameras on. But the thing is, in the ocean, you don't see very far. 
so it's the measurements of the properties of the water very, very accurately is what this glider does. And then the gliding through the water is not quite as fast as the ship, but that doesn't really matter. Um, it's got plenty of time, so it just uses batteries to change its buoyancy, sort of a bit like breathing in and out. You can do that, change your buoyancy when you're swimming, if you've got a scuba tank on, breathe in, you go up, breathe out, you go down. Mm. So the glider essentially does that. That's how it goes up and down. And then because it's got wings on the side, that makes it go forward as well. It's a super cool little thing. It's about, um, I'm guessing about from the photos, about a metre long maybe and, and bright yellow in these two little wings that are out the side. Yeah, that's right, a little bit longer. And, you know, computer on board, I'll take the batteries, couple of um, oceanographic sensors and an, an, an antenna so that when it's finished its dive, comes to the surface, uh, phones home, uh, we get the data, we compare notes on whether or not it's actually going the way it should be and if we change our minds about where it should go we can upload new instructions otherwise it just follows its pre-programmed route. Uh, so it's you know GPS and satellite communications are the other thing that makes this possible. Now, I should and mention... I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, so then it's, you know, because it's pre-programmed, you only have to check it every day or so, and it just goes out there and does the job. A bit like one of those lawnmowers, only, only better. Is there ever any concern, David, that, um, that it might get lost or the batteries might fail? I imagine they wouldn't be, um, they wouldn't be cheap. They'd be quite expensive, these instruments. Yeah, the whole thing's about 200,000. Um, but when, you know, a single day on a ship costs something like $15,000. So, uh, you know, many of these gliders have done many missions. They've paid for themselves many, many times. We have lost a few. That happens from various sorts of accidents. If the battery runs low, then um, we'll tell it to come home early. If a battery runs really low and it still hasn't got home, then we just tell it to park at the surface and send its position. And if it's not too far out in the middle of nowhere, we send the ship out to pick it up. So let's get to uh, the, some of the data that has been brought back by this particular glider. What, what have you found with what's come back? Uh, well, the Great Australian Bite is sort of one of the least studies part, studied parts of the ocean around Australia. And one reason for that is that very little happens there. It's much less dynamic than other parts of the ocean. doesn't mean that what does happen is any less important. It just means that the signals are all really quite weak. Um, so the water moves very slowly, and so that kind of makes it even a, a more intense question. What keeps the ecosystem going? because without the water overturning and nutrients being brought to the surface, nothing can survive. Mm. So trying to understand that process better is what this is all about. And what sort of parameters were you uh, collecting through this process? Was it mostly just um, so salinity and physical chemical, physico-chemical um, parameters, or were you looking at other um, like nutrient levels and uh, biological factors as well? Uh, we... The, Instruments for measuring nutrients are still not quite ready for going on gliders. They are used in sort of a, in an experimental mode, but they're not quite ready yet for routine use. 
Um, this particular glider was measuring temperature and salinity very easy. Um, dissolved oxygen, a little bit harder, but also very interesting. Um, and fluorescence. So fluorescence measures the amount of chlorophyll that's in the water, which is an indicator of the that's you know that's the the um, uh, photoactive pigment in the phytoplankton. So by measuring the amount of chlorophyll, uh, you get an idea of the concentration and the activity of the phytoplankton which is in the water. And what have you found with that? Is it um, is it quite a, a variable environment? Do you find that there are different parts of the bite that have more chlorophyll or less chlorophyll in them? Yes, yes, very much so. There, there are parts with almost none. Um, and then the, the eastern bite near the Bonnie Coast, we call it, and between Robe and Portland, that's the area of Australia where you get the, the most intense um, blooms of phytoplankton. There's very strong concentrations of nutrient coming to the surface there, particularly in summer. And this summer, uh, we had that very much so. It happens even more during El Nino or just following El Nino, as, as was the case this year. And that's why the whales go there because the phytoplankton comes to the surface, um, becomes like lots and lots of green grass almost, and like an analogy with land, uh, and then the zooplankton will feed on that, and then the whales and everything else comes along and has a, has a feast on that. So it's very, very productive on, near the coast. But out in the open ocean, it's much less so, uh, and the productivity is driven by these cyclonic eddies which can bring uh, nutrients to the surface in the, in the centre of those. And the glider stumbled upon one of those. Um, intriguing structure, well, I won't go through the details of it, but um, quite uh, different to the structure of the systems that we get on other parts of Australia. So what's next with this, David? Uh, it sounds like there's a mountain of research to be done and in its infancy in terms of what we know about the bite. Um, what, what's planned next? This is one of the things I love about oceanography is you're not just sort of adding tiny little bits to an enormous body of information. It's still in its infancy, so you're breaking new ground all the time, so it's quite exciting. It's like virgin territory. Uh, so there is still so much to do, and we've only done three of these glider missions in the bite, and it would probably take many, many more before we could claim to say, yep, got it all sussed. Yeah, fantastic. So this is the the very beginning of this journey in, in understanding what's out there in the bite. So wonderful to uh, to have you to talk to us about that, David, and we're really hoping to keep in touch. We should mention um, some of your research partners as well. You're with CSIRO, um, but SARDI, the South Australian Research and Development Institute, were part of this as well as University of Adelaide and Flinders University as well. So, And, and that's where that integrated um, part to IMOS comes in. Um, yes, and don't forget, thanks to our sponsors, BP, they, they've uh, funded this research program. That's great. Well, the more we can learn about the bite, the better, and we're really hoping to uh, keep in touch with you uh, as, as we learn more and more over the years to come. Thank you. Thank, thanks so much for joining us. All right. Okay, okay bye, bye. For, bye for now. Dr David Griffin there from CSIRO. Sounds like a totally fascinating project. Indeed. So much to learn.
We are so blessed in this city to have so many things to do during the winter months, Angeline. Just listening to that station announcement, just so much going on. Radiothon's coming up in five weeks. Well, there are there is actually some very interesting stuff happening yes. down at Blair Gallery. Now, I've heard from uh, AJ, just called in, thanks AJ, from uh, Dive to You to let us know about Operation SpongeBob uh, at the Blair Gallery Yacht Squadron. And the project is to um, remove the marine life that's uh, on the uh, submerged wall at the, at the Yacht Squadron. It's about 150 metres long and attach that to the new wall when that goes in place. Uh, and I think I've, I've uh, mentioned to AJ, be great for him to come onto the show uh, hopefully next week and talk to us about the project in depth. That'd be but great. I just wanted to, be, to let listeners know that there's a launch next Saturday at 10am at the Yacht Squadron and there's a Facebook page which we will link onto ours today. Uh, so if you're interested in going down there um, to the launch and learning more about the project, I'm not sure if there's possibilities to be involved, but um, I'm sure they'll let you know if there is. Really looking forward to hearing more about this. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. It does. Um, also, I heard from Pat, uh, who was uh, the other week surfing at Flinders off the West Head Gunnery, you know, the, the long point that goes out, and he, there was orcas there apparently, uh, a bunch of orcas eating stuff. That, that to me, though, Pat just says, get out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> but he wanted to know whether um, anyone had some images of it, so if anyone wants to, to message us on Facebook or ring in, uh, let us know. I'll give you Pat's details. Yeah, probably best to do it via Facebook. Yeah, that uh, be easier. Because we won't be here for too much longer. That's right. But, um, yeah, that would be great if you can do that. And, yeah, images of orcas, and they, they pass through um, Western Port. Uh, Neil, you're still with us. Mm-hmm. Um, you've, have you come across orcas in your travels? Uh, I did see one, actually, yeah, just over near Geelong. Um, that was a few months ago, though. So, but, uh, and, and Judy Muir did tell me, though, that she saw a couple though, recently, too, down oh, that way. So how exciting. They're about, which is good, having, is. having fun. That's right. Chomping on seals and things, I guess. Can't <laughs> <laughs> believe that. They'd obviously be attracted to uh, Phillip Island. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. All right, Angeline, we're going to turn our attentions now to the um, Ocean Cleanup Project. The Ocean Cleanup, yeah, which is the world's first feasible method to, uh, well, we're working out whether it's feasible still, to rid the ocean of plastic. Uh, and particularly thinking about the Pacific gyre that's out uh, in the middle of the ocean, which is full of rubbish. It has um, a really large volume of rubbish there, which is impacting on wildlife, even up to whales, in fact. Certainly they've been finding uh, whales elsewhere with rubbish inside their stomachs. Um, the project was started in 2013 by Boyan Slat, who was still a teenager at that stage. Uh, there's 25 staff and 100 volunteers, and they operate out of the Netherlands. So the time, the, the start date for the actual project to start is 2020, which, you know, to me still sounds like it's ages away, but it's really only four years away. Well, three and a half. Yeah, yeah three and a half. It'll come up yep. in no time. It's a 10-year project, so he thinks it'll take 10 years to clean up this big garbage patch. So what they've done uh, this week is they've deployed a 100-metre-long segment of the the full um, barrier, which the prototype, which will be 360 metres long, and they've put that into the ocean in the North Sea to test how this will respond to the ocean conditions. Because it's going to um, cop a lot of energy in the ocean and it's got to be there for 10 years, they need to be really sure about the design of, of the um, barrier. So they've put that in there and they think too the sort of uh, storms that they get through in the North Sea uh, would be the most... Uh, so a, lo- a light sort of... A low storm in the North Sea would be equivalent to 
a one in 100 in the Pacific Ocean right. because they get long... So, like at the North Sea, and obviously a bit like Port Phillip here too, we get short, sort of short, choppy waves. And in the, the in the Pacific Ocean, they get long waves with little with little uh, currents. Right. So they're testing it in the North Sea, and hoping hoping that they can um, get some data out of it to make sure they've got the design right when they they do their um, design. So they're going to have a pilot installation next year, 2017, and then ultimately put the the full model in place in 2020. It's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, I understand the, the reason why the, the plastics is concentrating in the North Pacific is there's a, a high-pressure system that's sort of constantly hovering over that area and so that's the, the, the currents and winds are generated by the winds are relatively uh, regular. You know, so yeah. the chances of it uh, being smashed by a massive storm are probably reduced by that. Yes, yeah, indeed. And... And essentially, in a way, it kind of makes it convenient to clean it up because mm. it is concentrated in that one spot. Yeah. Then I, you haven't heard much, but there'd be some logistics in then getting that rubbish. So that all gets collected and will be taken ashore somewhere and, and uh, found processed. processed. Uh, so it's an awesome project. Yeah, it must give you hope, Neil. I mean, I, there, there are two issues here, aren't there? There's the fact that we still have to stop this stuff at source that's right but at the meantime there is this massive problem that needs to be addressed yeah it's terrific really and uh, it really uh, does shine a light for the future because while the plastic is still there it's only going to be a a continuing problem as it does become smaller and smaller particles and uh, gets further into the food chain thanks angeline Thanks, Brian. That's really great. And I'll put a link on our Facebook page. Please. There's a few videos of it being deployed too that you can watch. That's right. I don't think we've had much uh, uh, commentary yet on the whale footage we mentioned at the start of the program. If you've recently tuned in, some whale footage uh, of, of a couple of what we think are humpbacks. Um, fantastic footage, which both Brighton and Blairgarry Yacht Club are claiming was taken uh, <laughs> from from their area. So uh, get onto our Facebook page and have a look for yourself and tell us what you think. Is it Brighton or is it Blairgarry? You're not going to upset anyone. We're just interested in your opinion. Neil, just before we let you go, I wanted to um, ask you about the upcoming um, Coast to Coast Conference in Melbourne. Mm. Um, there's a community-based workshop which you're going to be involved with. Do you want to give that one a quick plug? Uh, yes, well, I believe that's on Monday. And uh, one of the things we've been talking about is having a hypothetical as to how to design a a, a citizen science uh, activity. So that'll be really good uh, exercise, I think. Fantastic. So this is Monday the 29th of August. Um, You can register just for a day. You don't have to register for the whole conference because it is quite expensive. Mm. You can just do a one-day community registration um, applying to recognise volunteers with coastal community groups who uh, obviously it's it's something that you do on a voluntary basis, but Mm. um, a wonderful workshop. So um, we'll put some details to that on our Facebook page too. Um, Rob Gell was in recently talking about the Coast to Coast Conference and all three of us are involved, aren't we? It's going to be great fun. Yes. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, Angeline. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you so much to Kent. He's panelling for us today. I think he's sticking around for the doctors. Yes, he is. Kent, you're amazing. Um, yes, legend indeed. So uh, Dr Doolittle's out there with uh, with his army of medicos. They're going to come in shortly and tell us uh, about all things medical until 11 o'clock when Dr Shane, who is also in the Triple R studios, we are so hardworking here on a Sunday morning. We'll take you through to 12. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.